Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. We'll begin reading from verse 1 through verse 16 of Ephesians. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving God, we thank you, Father, for your great provision for us. We thank you, Father, that you are one. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, yet you are one God. Father, we pray in thanks that our union is with you. And that because we are united to you, that we are united one to another. Father, we pray that you would grow us in humility and in meekness, in gentleness, in patience, and in forbearance and love. Father, we pray that you would receive glory, that you would receive praise. Father, we pray for the growth of your people, that we would learn to serve one another, that we would learn to esteem others as better than ourselves. Father, we pray for the growth of your people, that we would humble ourselves and trust in you. Father, we pray that there would indeed be true unity in our midst, unity that's founded upon you, the triune God. And we pray, Father, that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work of transformation. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who saves sinners. We pray that your son would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Oftentimes, we hear among people, uh, people who are in the church or outside the church, there's often this plea for unity. If only we would have unity, we ought to have unity. 
But oftentimes we have to ask the question, what is the basis? What is the basis of their plea? What unites us? And if it's something about the, uh, the universal brotherhood of man, right, universal fatherhood of God, then what we start to realize is that there's no basis of what they're talking about to unity. There's no universal brotherhood of man. There's no such thing. Here we have in the scriptures, we talk about unity, but part of unity is that there is a pairing away. There is a separation, right? We, it, unless there's unity in the truth of the gospel, there's unity in the truth of God's word, there is no unity. That the sheep and the goat cannot be united because Jesus said that he separates them. Here, we think about the basis of our unity, and in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we have this unity mentioned in these seven mentions of one, right? There's seven ones, right? One body, one spirit. You are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this unity is founded upon the triune God. The reason why we as Christians have unity is because we believe in one God and there is perfect unity in the Holy Trinity. Here, we come to this passage where the Apostle Paul has been speaking about the duty or the, the need to keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He speaks about certain things regarding uh, these characteristics are what facilitate unity. And then he speaks about the perfect example of unity in our holy God. And then starting in verse 7, he goes from there to talk about how there are distinctions, different gifts, right? He's talking about the diversity within the body that is united. Here we, we see that the Lord is the one, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord is the one who, <clears throat> who gives these gifts. He's the one who allows people to be different that he is the one Lord, that we might say, hey, who are you to judge the servant of another? It is according to the Lord, his Lord, his master, that he will be judged, and that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have in today's passage, Ephesians 4, verses 4, to 3, 4 through 6, we have this truth that God, God's command to keep the unity of the Spirit is founded upon our union with the triune God. God's command to keep the unity of the Spirit is founded upon our union with the triune God. We'll look at this in three points. The first is unity in the Holy Spirit, in verse 4. Second, unity in the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 5. And third, unity in the God and Father of all, in verse 6. So we have the first point, unity in the Holy Spirit, in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Here, we think about the transition that the Apostle Paul has made in this letter. Ephesians 1 through 3 tells us about uh, the mighty work of God, what God has done on your behalf. Here, we think about the, the various letters that Paul has written and the general epistles, right? You think about the, the letters of Peter, you think about James. In many of these epistles, New Testament epistles, they follow the same pattern. What God has done, and there's some, some kind of therefore, some kind of transition, and then there's imperatives. Be because of what God has done for you, this then is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to think. This is how you ought to be different. And we see that transition beginning in Ephesians chapter 4. Here at the, 
the big thing that Paul brings up when he begins this transition to imperatives is he speaks about unity. And what you and I ought to conclude is how important then of a theme is unity regarding the Christian life. That we ought to work towards unity, that we ought to desire to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's not as if we're establishing a unity that doesn't exist. This unity is founded upon the, the three persons of the Godhead. It's already there. Here, what we have is that there was initially an instruction regarding humility, regarding gentleness or meekness, patience, and forbearance and love. That if, if these traits are lacking, there will inevitably be disunity around us. Regarding this text, verse 4, we have what starts off the phrase, there is. But this, this statement, there is, doesn't exist in the original language. It just begins with one body. And here, in the English translation, it's, it's added, but it's implied. What we ought to understand is that there is one. These seven ones. And you think about how in among the Hebrews, maybe even among the Greeks, that this, this idea of seven is a number of perfection. And for the Apostle Paul, he understands that this is one, that we worship one God, that there is one body. When we think about this body, we have a difference between the body of Christ and other bodies. You think about all kinds of various clubs, social interest groups, political groups, uh, whatever groups there are, you realize that there's something distinct about the church, the gathering of God's people. It's actually called a body, and it's one. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here he repeats the statement, one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We have this idea that different people groups have to be separated. That Jews and Greeks could be together. That they could say... We're brothers and sisters in Christ because we have a new identity. That slaves and free. You would think that there would be a stark distinction whether in the Roman culture, the Greek culture, that slave and free would not be part of the same body. That part of the social eating clubs, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be in the same household except if the servants are there serving their masters, family. There, there wouldn't be uh, with this idea of interaction, right? There wouldn't be conversation that they wouldn't look each other in the eye, that this was, this was a big deal. And back then, the servant was the one who looked down. He didn't look people in the eye because they weren't equals. Yet in the church, we're told, Jew and Gentile, slaves and free, united in Christ, one body. Can you imagine how, how revolutionary an idea this was back then, that there was one body in Christ? It's revolutionary of an idea now. How separated people are in, its, in their various views and, and convictions. Yet we have one body. Christ's one body. 
Here, we think also of one spirit. Some people talk about the spirit of man. No, this is the Holy Spirit. There's one spirit. And this one spirit is the one who indwells his people. We think about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you look at yourself and the various temptations. Remember, I was talking to a good friend of mine where she was concerned about our, the U.S. soldiers, right, going overseas and all the types of temptations that, that they would face, right, all the dangers they would face, not just physical but spiritual. And then I try to bring her back to this idea of, well, what about all the temptations you face every day? I mean, it's not as if we don't have any. It's not all on them. We face temptations all the time. And we ask ourselves, how do we know, how do we know <clears throat> that we will win? How do we know that we will, we will continue on in the faith? 1 John 4, 4-6. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This indwelling Holy Spirit is something very significant to you and to me. The statement, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You ask yourself, for you, those of you who are parents, you ask, what about the lives of our children? The environment they grow up in. Is there any hope that they will come out of it all and be upright, godly, faithful Christians? The hope is right here. This one spirit. The one who is in them is greater than the one who is in the world. That is the only hope that we have. Otherwise, you think about the various tools that Satan uses. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Are these not the three missiles, the three projectiles that Satan uses to attack us? The same ones he will use to attack our children? The same ones he will use to attack uh, each and every person who identifies with Jesus Christ as Lord? Indwelling Holy Spirit is the one who protects us so that we continue on in the faith that our faith doesn't fail. Great is the temptation in this world, the flesh and the devil, but Jesus promised that he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And we are in dire need of him. Amen. Because of this one spirit, we have one hope. We have one hope. It's not many hopes. If you think about, hey, do you, do you, hope, uh, do you hope the twins are going to do well this year? Hey, do, you, do you hope the timber walls will be good? Oh, we have all kinds of idle hopes, but there's only one hope in this world that matters. And that's hope in Jesus Christ, hope that comes from the Holy Spirit. Here, we think about how the Holy Spirit is connected to this hope. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you were sealed with the, Holy, the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here, we ought to understand that the Holy Spirit 
is the guarantee of our inheritance. You and I come across all kinds of difficult things in life. There's despair. There's hopelessness. There's turmoil. But you realize with the indwelling Holy Spirit that there is this promise, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is that deposit. God is saying, hey, this Holy Spirit is given to you until you are brought safely to my heavenly kingdom. It's like that young man who says, this, this engagement ring is my promise that I will wed you. And here, you ought to understand, if he breaks off that engagement, that's a free gift. Meaning, that deposit doesn't go back to him. He can't ask for it back because his statement was, hey, listen, if, if I don't fulfill, this is yours. Now, if she decides, you know what, I'm calling this off, right? she has to return it. But if he breaks his promise, that's, that's hers. It's a free gift. He can't claim it. You ask yourself, would our God ever make an idle or a false promise? He gives a deposit of the Holy Spirit, guarantees your inheritance. The Holy Spirit is also connected to your hope because he is integral to your access to the Father. Ephesians 2.18, For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is why you and I have hope. Hey, we go through difficult problems. We face all kinds of terrible news. But have you reflected on this? Hey, God's given me the gift of the Holy Spirit. I have an inheritance in heaven. It's waiting for me. It's already there, promised by Jesus, secured by the Spirit. And that you, a child of God, have access to the Father. So this is the first point, unity in the Holy Spirit. We have the second point, unity in the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Here, this one Lord. We don't beat around the bush. We, we don't uh, mince words. That Lord here means master. You know, here, you can understand. This idea of a master, it falls out of favor. That, uh, you know, you... You go look at a home with your, with your realtor and they don't want to call it the master bedroom anymore because they don't like this term master, right? Master, it's insulting because it's not the master bedroom, right? But here, you have to understand that this term master cannot fall out of favor in the Christian faith because we worship the Lord Jesus who is our master. There's no avoiding that. Here, the idea of a master is that someone who is in charge of your life, someone that you, that you owe obedience to, that you and I should have no issues with this because we openly acknowledge that Jesus paid the price to set us free. We were in bondage to sin. Nothing was good about our life till he came around. And he is the one who paid the price. He paid the penalty so that you and I might be set free. That God's wrath he took upon himself when he died on the cross. What better news is there than that? That God's wrath has been removed from you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so when Jesus says, obey me, he who loves me, obey my commandments, 
But we're not thinking, hey, who cares? Who are you to tell me what to do? Where we're saying, oh, you are the voice of my master and that we will obey you exactly as you've said. Is the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord, the ruler, the master of your life? If he is not and you are in the church, there will be disunity around you. You will cause disunity. Unless you are submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, invariably there will be disunity and discord in your life. Part of the, the unity that we have is that there is one Lord, submitting to one Lord Jesus. There aren't other Lords. There aren't other Baals. There aren't other Molechs. There is only one Lord Jesus. And because of him, there is one faith. Oftentimes people ask, regarding this one faith, is this an objective faith or is it a subjective faith? And it seems like people are quite divided about this question. But we think about objective faith. Then we think about how each church has a separate confession or a statement of faith. And if it's objective, then how can it be that there's so many different congregations and denominations and they don't have a, a faith that agrees? Well, we can answer that by saying, you know what, some of those details, they don't have aligned, but the objective faith is that in Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus. The gospel remains the same. Some of the details are different, but the gospel remains the same. Here we see it as an objective faith. From Jude 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Here Jude writes about a common salvation, and it originates from this faith that was once for all handed down to the saints, that we might call a common faith. Meaning that the faith that we believe we can't look back and say, hey, uh, the people in the 3rd century or the 8th century, there, there was no church there. No, there was. There was a church. There were people who were following Jesus Christ and there will continue to be a church in this world until Jesus returns. That the, the light of the gospel, the light of the church the gathering of God's people will continue until Jesus returns. Here also, we think about this faith. It is how Christianity is set apart from every other religion. We have to answer that question, how is man made right before God? This is what religion as a whole, attempts to answer, how is man made right before God? Is it, is it by something we do? World religions, false religions, all answer it. This is what man must do to achieve that. Achieve a standing before God. Christianity is distinct in that man is made right before God based on nothing that we do. Right. It's based on the righteousness of another. Amen. Here, in our Christianity... We have the command to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus who lived the perfect life, who died on the cross on behalf of sinners, who laid down his life to pay the price for our sins. 
the very righteousness that you and I lack, Jesus lived the perfect life. And that you and I are called to embrace that by faith. So, is there anything meritorious in faith? None at all. There's nothing meritorious by faith. You think about all the righteous requirements of the law. The Old Testament. It wasn't just external, it was internal. In the New Testament, with the Gospel, it wasn't that God just took that and said, I'm going to dumb it down to, you just need to believe. And and that's going to be your merit. There is no merit in faith. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive the promises of the Gospel. We read earlier in Isaiah 61 that faith, by faith, we receive the righteousness of Jesus. And it's very well described there in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, that Jesus gives to us the garments of salvation, his very righteousness. This is the robe that covers us, that his perfect righteousness is robed around us so that when God sees us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here, we read earlier in our confession about saving faith. How is true faith identified? True faith believes to be true Whatsoever is revealed in the Word. True faith is believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word. And you realize that is under attack. And it has been for as long as man has been around, for as long as there's been a serpent, right? You think about the, the challenges that we have to that. God gives us His Word. It's clear. It addresses every matter of our lives. Starts in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, right? Hey, you're descended from monkeys. No, we're not. We're created in the image of God. There's a big difference. Hey, this idea of man and woman, you can choose what you want to be. No. Genesis 1.27 says, God made man, male and female. You realize that even if there's an outward external change, even your DNA says that someone who's born a woman is a woman. Someone who's born a man is a man. Whatsoever God has revealed in his word is true. That is faith. True faith yields obedience to God in his commands. Here, some people claim, hey, I believe in Jesus. Well, are you obeying him at his word? Are you dying to yourself? Are you, are you crucifying the lusts of your flesh? Are you... Are you killing sin, or is it killing you? True faith, then, can't be proud and rebellious. It must yield as Master Lord Jesus, yielding to his commands. True faith trembles at God's threats and warnings. Here, God, he gives warnings, he gives threats, and People in general don't like threats. We don't threaten, we shouldn't threaten each other, right? You think about how interactions, right? No one likes to be threatened. God is the one, and he alone is the one who can threaten, and we ought to hear it. We ought to heed it. And a threat from God, a warning from God is mercy. Because he doesn't have to warn us, he can just send judgment. 
Right? So when, when God warns of judgment to come, that is actually his mercy because it's a call to repentance, if anything. So that we must believe his promise, hey, he who lives a lifestyle who makes choices like this, that, that they, will, they will bring judgment upon themselves, that there will be difficulty, that, that there will be all kinds of corruption. We can't just blow those off. That he who lives in this way, who, who, he who makes these types of choices, that he brings, he brings misery upon himself. We should, we should believe those. We should heed them. And true faith also embraces God's promises. True faith embraces God's promise. He promised forgiveness of sins to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, how do I know? My sins are so great. I don't know if Christ can save me. Hey, you're insulting our Lord. He is the great Savior. And if he's not a Savior, or is there some sinner he can't save, then he's no Savior at all. Don't fool me. Don't fool me with this, oh, my sins are so great. No, no. Jesus is the great Savior. He saves sinners. No one is beyond his ability. That Jesus' sacrifice indeed is great and is sufficient to cover for sins even of the whole world. Here, the world calls faith. You just have to believe in something. Right? We just need to believe in something. Right? And yeah, uh, yeah he, he's a very uh, spiritual man or a spiritual woman. He's very faithful. Oh, what does he believe? Oh, oh yeah, he, he believes in the power of self. Well, that sounds like a whole lot of sentimentalism to me, right? It sounds like a whole bunch of uh, this, uh, this uh, self-fulfillment type of... No, no. Faith has to have the right object. Mm-hmm. And that right object is our Lord Jesus. Right. Faith doesn't trust in ourselves. Faith trusts in another. The righteousness of another. Here we think about this one baptism. Oh, baptism. Wait a minute. You're talking about unity. <laughs> You're wrong here, though. Uh, this baptism, it seems like within the Christian church, it's one of the most divisive issues, right? That the church, regarding the view of the sacraments, there's, there's such a span, right? Various groups are divided over the meaning, the mode, and the proper recipients of baptism. Wait a minute, how is there one baptism? And that is unity. Well, consider the fundamentals. Look at the meaning of baptism. The meaning is... Uh, the cleansing from sin, and perhaps even more so, the need for cleansing from sin. That people who receive baptism imply, it's implied that they are in need of cleansing. And God alone is the one who does that work in man, not we ourselves. Think also about the symbolism of regeneration, the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit the need for new birth. And God alone does that, not us. No one gives birth to themselves. God's the one who gives spiritual life. Think about what God is doing. Outside the walls of Jericho, right, in the book of Joshua, right, we have the sacrament of circumcision that Israel was about to go into the walls of Jericho, go through to conquer them, and, and God stops and says, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, this wicked generation in the wilderness, they didn't circumcise their children, their, their sons. It has to be done. He's saying, hey, this is a tactical nightmare because you're going to be debilitated for a week or two, but there must be a separation between my people and those who are not my people. And you see here, 
sacraments in general is God marking off a person as his own, separated from the world. Oftentimes in evangelicalism, people like to think, well, this baptism is my profession of faith. No, your profession of faith is your profession of faith, right? You profess faith by believing you confess Jesus Christ publicly as your Lord and Savior, right? You admit that you're a sinner who is in need of, of his righteousness. Here, baptism is a testimony from God to us, not the other way around. Here, we think also the need for the reminder that water baptism does not save. There's nothing, there's nothing holy about having your body washed, right? I mean, think about it. It's just water. It's not as if we use soap and water or soap and bleach or, or anything like that. We, no matter how much you scrub, right, you, you see some of with this COVID, they have all these new cleaners now. Have you ever wondered how fast they came out? And you, you think maybe years from now, you find out, hey, this stuff is carcinogenic, right? I mean, you would think issues like this would come up, right? But you know what? No matter how harsh that chemical is, right? It's not going to wash our souls clean of our sins, right? Water baptism doesn't save, right? It's only a symbol of what God does within. In Galatians 3, 27 to 28, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see this reminder of one again. You're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism. You think about the equality that, that results in baptism. Does anyone receive a different baptism other than Jesus than, than we have? We all receive the same baptism, right? Perhaps some of you have been baptized by famous ministers, but I'll tell you what, that doesn't change your baptism at all, right? Hey, perhaps some of you were baptized by people who became apostate ministers. That doesn't invalidate your baptism either, right? Ultimately, it's not a sacrament that belongs to a particular person, here, doesn't matter who did it, lawfully ordained minister. Baptism, what we admit to, what the world sees, we all have equally low status because we admit we're failures. We admit that we're sinners in need of God's cleansing work in our lives. And that he who receives, she who receives baptism, our only boast is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is why there's unity in baptism. Because no one is better than another. We all admit our sin. We all admit our need for repentance. We all profess faith. We all trust in the one Lord Jesus. So that's the second point. Unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also have third. The unity in the God and Father of all. Verse 6. One God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. <clears throat> Oftentimes when we see. The mentions of the Trinity, like 2 Corinthians 13, at the end, often is used as a, a benediction. You know, you, you have the order of uh, other places, like the, the Great Commission, right? You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? But here, we see in, in this verses 4 through 6, it's the other way around. It's Spirit, Lord Jesus, and God the Father. It's finishing with the source of it all. Now you think about how in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, 
that God is the one, God the Father is the one who set the plan of salvation. Here, we often hear about this, that when you talk about God as Father, that you can go to him in prayer, other people look at you and say, hey, what do you mean? Anyone can go to, go to God in prayer because he's, every, he's everyone's father. Well, in the most important sense, they're, they're wrong. They're wrong. It's, it's not by mere physical birth, right? That God is the one who is responsible for our physical life. He's, he's given us physical life. But the big question is, to whom did he give spiritual birth? The only way you can claim God as your father, spiritually, is that you are in Jesus Christ. That you've been given birth by the Holy Spirit. That through Christ, God covenants with his people. That he is the one who gives us exceedingly great promises. These promises are fulfilled by his son, especially the righteous requirements of the law, which you and I cannot do. In order to have God as your father, you must have Jesus, the son, as your one and only mediator. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want access to the Father? You have to pass through the Son. Here, other people say, hey, listen, uh, I'm not concerned about that. I, I just need access to the Father so that my urgent prayer requests can be answered. Oh, same issue. If you have no mediator in Jesus Christ, you have no high priest. Your prayers are not heard and answered by the Father because Jesus is the one who guarantees that your prayers are heard and answered. He's at God's right hand interceding for you. So if Jesus is not your Lord, he's not your Savior either. And you have no access to the Father. Here we think also about the Holy Spirit. You must have the testimony of the Holy Spirit for God to be your Father. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father. So the Holy Spirit in your lives, in your hearts is the one who testifies to your adoption and by which you may cry Abba Father. Unless there's the indwelling Holy Spirit unless there is your union with Christ There is no Father of God. And here we see again, God the Father is over all and through all and in all. Do you believe that God is over you? And do you have any trouble with that? Sinful man approaches God, thinking that there can be negotiations with God. Right? You think about how in the life of Job, through difficult times, He starts saying, hey, I'm going to go talk to God, and I'm going to question him, right? This idea, hey, who are you to question God? Do we get to ask questions, right, against our God? Do we get to negotiate with him? The answer is no. Negotiation implies equality, and there is no equality with God. He lays the terms down. These are the terms. Gospel offer. Those are the terms. They won't get any better than that. You ought to receive it. You want to believe upon it. You want to trust in him. Here, God is over us. That you and I should actually rejoice. You realize, if we, if we were our own masters, this would be a very dangerous thing. 
That's what sin is. Being, trying to be our own masters. Rejecting God's authority. God is over us. It is a great thing. Here we think about some of the things that we can walk away with with this passage. The humbling truths of Christianity. These seven ones remind us of your inability to save yourself and your total dependence on God in every step of the way in your salvation. If any step were left to ourselves, we will fail miserably. And God is one who guarantees us that we have salvation through Christ and that you and I will continue on to completion through the Spirit. God's people, the church, this is a completely different gathering than any other group. That you think about the rules that govern us. We can't try to take the world's rules and apply it here into the church. This is a spiritual body. When we think about the unity of the spirit, it's not about trying to cast as big and as wide of a net as possible to include every person and every different religion. That unity of the spirit often includes, begins with a paring down, with a, a separation. Oh, wait a minute. As, as the Jews were saying, we refuse to have this man rule over us. Well, you know what you just did? You just showed that you are outside of the net. That you and I are those who agree and rejoice that our Lord Jesus rules over us. So you think about the one body, the body of Jesus Christ. There is unity because we're saying we're part of this body. We belong to this body. We desire the good of the, the whole body. You have the one Holy Spirit who indwells his people. Who is the spirit of unity who unites his people. You have the one hope. Having the Holy Spirit being reminded of the positive of the inheritance we will receive in heaven. That this is the one hope. It's not the many hopes. It's the one hope. We have the one Lord Jesus. That there's not many lords. There is only one. There is only one who saves. There is only one who brings us access to the Father. There is only one truth, and that is Jesus Christ, that he alone is Lord and Master of your life and of mine. There is one faith. It's not many faiths, it's one faith. The faith that Jesus indeed is Lord. He is God. He willingly laid down his life, and that he freely offers salvation to sinners, that it's not by faith and works. It is by faith apart from works. There is one baptism. All who receive baptism, that we openly admit that we're sinners in need of God's cleansing. That he washes us clean of our sin. And that we are all under this one God who is Father of all. May this gospel of Jesus Christ, may this oneness of our God bring you hope, knowing that you and I are united to him. And that means we are also united to one another by faith. May we go to our God together in prayer.